Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. On this episode of the podcast, I speak with Chris Shu, the co-founder and CEO of Azebo. Chris is a dynamic founder. He has a wealth of experience both in big corporations and venture capital. We discuss at length the opportunities in transforming the real estate industry, specifically for landlords and tenants through the Azebo software, go into his why behind leaving the Valley and coming to Reno, just get to know him a little bit better personally, and just really have a great conversation that I think we'll, you will find is both informative and engaging. So on with the podcast. Chris, welcome to the Growth Pioneers podcast. It's good to see you. Hey, it's great to be here, Doug. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm excited to, to chat with you. You know, I've really enjoyed getting to know you over the last couple of months and uh, just excited to uh, have you be one of the newest Nevada residents. It's great to have you. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed being part of the EDON events and I just feel so welcome and supported in this community. Well, that's what we do. That's just who we are. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your background? Yeah, well, I've got a pretty diverse background. I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I uh, then went to the military academy and joined the army, spent uh, several years on active duty in mostly in Germany, and then uh, got out of the army as a captain to pursue a career in business. Ended up in Minneapolis, Minnesota as a uh, brand manager or product management up there in the kind of basic skills of learning general management. I did that. I was in Betty Crocker and Yo Play Yogurt. I probably ate too much while I was there, but uh, yeah, it was all good. Lots of chocolate chip cookies and that kind of thing. <laughs> then uh, I decided to go to business school and I went to Kellogg and uh, Northwestern University. Yeah. And uh, after that, I decided to uh, go join McKinsey Company, which is a consulting firm, a strategy consulting firm, yeah. just to learn about global business and get a lot more exposure to different industries and different functions. Did that for about five and a half years and was uh, recruited by a private equity firm called KKR and uh, joined KKR to really start to have more impact, like more hands-on operational leadership in companies as opposed to really focusing on strategy, which is what we did at McKinsey. I did that. I was going to do that for a couple of years and then, you know, go be a, an operating leader. And just like anything else, I ended up staying seven years and you know, was uh, spent a lot of time in in the U.S., Europe, Asia, you name it. Working with uh, KKR was it was a fun time. We were growing like crazy, and we also lived through the two thousand eight, nine, and ten downturn. It was intense because we were highly it had lots of highly levered companies. Yeah. But then after that, I was um, recruited by Meg Whitman out of KKR to uh, join her at HP when HP was a $100 billion company and really help her kind of bring some of the um, thinking and discipline and, and structure from private equity into HP and became her you know right-hand man and helped her do a lot of different things there, including separating the two companies into Inc. and HP Enterprise. What an interesting company. I mean, I mean, they're like the sort of foundational icon of the Valley, right? I mean, you can still go around different parts of Silicon Valley. Isn't it like the original garage where the Rocker Brothers, isn't that like a, like a site there? It is. It's in downtown Palo Alto. And in fact, the old HP campus looked down the street. You could see the bell tower at Stanford University from yeah. HP campus because they basically founded the company right down the street. What a cool company to jump right. I mean, you know, it's obviously got a long history and you were part of what sounded like a really important transition it's a great company. It's got a great history. And, you know, the companies have done remarkably well as separate companies, you know, really being able to focus on their own customer segments. And, you know, they've got great leaders in there and have done really well. So we're really proud that, that it turned out that way. And from that, you you went into venture capital. So have you kind of always had a finance background? So you were in private equity, which is more like large cap companies. And then from HP, you moved back into the venture world or? Yeah. You know, I um, spun out one of the divisions and ran that for a while. And it was a large global platform and decided that I really wanted to get closer to the formation of business and building businesses from scratch is just one of the parts of my, I'd done a lot of stuff in my career, but I never actually built a company from scratch. Yeah. And so I had a unique opportunity to join Andreessen Horowitz as an advisory partner. And I did that for a while and just fell in love with some of the entrepreneurs that I got to meet and work with and support and really thought, wow, this is one of the biggest challenges I've ever seen is really 
taking an idea and building it from scratch. And so I decided to jump in with both feet and I met some guys that had a, a nugget of an idea and had some good financial backers and we decided to jump in and and build a Zebo. I'm super excited to you know to dive into Zebo. I just you know entrepreneurs are great people, such an interesting bunch, man. These are my, you know I feel like these are my people. And that recognition of the real challenge from going to zero to one. I mean, you've had this global perspective, you've been involved in private equity financing, large public companies, and then to go all the way back to formation. You must you must be a little crazy, Chris. And sometimes people ask me, "What are you doing?" And I say, "Well, you know, I fell down and hit my head on a rock and you know decided to start a company." It looks a lot sexier than it is in reality. <laughs> I think, you know, the corporate, all entrepreneurs have some fantasy of like flying around in corporate jets and doing all these things. But, you know, you left the corporate jet behind and now are, you know, wearing a hoodie. Yeah. I sometimes say that I've had the greatest fall from grace ever, you know, from a Gulfstream to a middle seat. Southwest Airlines. No digs on Southwest. I actually oh. fly it often and I love it. But uh, it's actually really different to go from being a big corporate officer to you know being anonymous and you know struggling to hire people because they're like, okay, you have a PowerPoint and an idea and a couple of dollars in the bank, but you know, really, is this a real business? Yeah. And that journey was challenging. You have to evolve as a leader, right? It's a totally different leadership challenge. And we'll get back. I definitely want to talk to you a little bit about culture, but let's, you know, tell me a little bit about Azebo and how you came up with it or like where the idea came from and sort of where you're going with it. The idea has kind of evolved a lot. You know, we've been doing this now three years and the initial nugget of the idea came from a paper that uh, Frank Rotman from QED wrote about, you know, the verticalization and, and specialization of banking. And really the general thesis was, you know, banks have are huge monolithic organizations that serve every segment of the population from, you know, HP at the largest end all the way down to an individual teenager who's opening up their first passbook savings account. And they do it across lots of different geographies and 300 different products and services. And how do you do all of those things well and tailored to different subsegments? And so the idea was that, you know, the banking industry was going to fragment into specialization because the combination of infrastructure companies that enable you to bring tailored financial services easily with technology mm -hmm. existed in the specific verticalized needs of different customer segments was evolving. And so that concept just so fundamentally struck me. And, you know, I've been an independent landlord for 25 years. It's just a massive, massive category in the United States. 80% yeah. of all real estate, residential real estate for rent is owned by mom and pops who are not professional. They're doing yep. it on the side. They might evolve in doing it full time, but that's a huge, huge sub-segment of the market. And there's no banking products that are tailored specifically to that segment. If you think about what we've done is we've taken a customer segment and we've assembled all of the financial services that that mom and pop independent landlord needs to buy, manage, and sell their property and really optimize profits and reduce headaches. And we've done it all in one integrated software stack. So obviously different than Airbnb, but providing kind of a full solution for, you know, individual or small uh, landlords. Really, that's what Azebo does. That's right. If you own anywhere from one to 250 units and you manage those properties yourself, either by selecting the insurance for it or financing it or, you know, doing the day-to-day -day rent collection and all of the maintenance activities and all that stuff, then, you know, Azebo is perfect platform for Interesting. you. And we wanted to bring that all together in a way that gives that independent landlord the same access to competitive financial services that the large professional institutional investors have. You know, the management tools on that alone are valuable. I mean, I ran a handful of Airbnbs and just having automation and cleaning automation, all that stuff made it manageable, even though I ultimately outsourced it because I'm like, I really don't want to have anything to do with it. But 
Tell me a little bit more about what it means to give that, you know, those financial services to the the mom and pops. What, what types of things were they not able to get before that you're able to get? So what we've done, let's take insurance for instance. We sell insurance in all 51 states. And what we do is we make it super easy to get multiple quotes digitally online. And not only that, our salespeople will help the landlord figure out what do they really need. You know, we're not there to sell them, you know, the most expensive policy. We're there to make sure they have the right coverage for the right price and that we do it in a super transparent way. And, you know, if you're independent landlord, typically your insurance will cost double what uh, institutional landlord pays for that same unit because they have the volume. And what we're starting to do is try and aggregate volume and provide the best product and service that that customer can get. So it's access to competitive products and services. It's also leveraging the data. So if you go and you buy a a property and that property is on our platform and you've applied for a loan and gotten a loan through us, you don't need to even apply for insurance. We have everything that you need. We can just give you a quote right there and bind it and you close. So it's really starting to take this concept of you can have one place to keep all of your information and data, and you can leverage that cross-product, cross-time. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. It's sort of like if you're an independent contractor, you can join, you know, like your chamber and get access to a pool of insurance to reduce your cost or something like that. But then once you are in your system, then you have, obviously, you'll have to enter it once and you get access to lots of different products. That's right. You know, a lot of landlords just don't have access to actually even the most competitive products on the market because they are used to going through the broker that they've always known or the person that sold them their house. They don't even know where to go to look for landlord-specific policies, and they don't really even need to know exactly what the policy that they got so they could get the loan covers. And does it cover the right things? Do they have, you know, there's a lot of landlords who, don't have the right coverage and that creates risk for them in their sure. portfolio. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. As you're talking, this is just one more reminder of how big fintech is going to be. Like there's just so many verticals that are done in an old way that are ripe for innovation. It sounds like you've really got a, you know, a handle on this, you know, small to medium-sized landlord. This is really your where your 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 focus is. Yeah, I mean, our competitive advantage is knowledge of the customer. You know, a lot of times when I talk to Folks are like, well, can't they get that at Wells Fargo? And yeah, you can go get a checking account, a commercial checking account at Wells Fargo, but you're not going to get it for free and you're not going to get it for four times the national average interest rate. And you're not going to get it fully integrated with your payments platform with a unique data tagging system that helps you keep all of your expenses even if it's in one account, you can keep all of your expenses aligned to multiple properties and multiple Schedule E tax buckets so that when it comes to tax time, you have you just click a button and you get a Schedule E tax worksheet that you might have to edit here and there because there are things that are offline. But it just gives you something where you could easily run that and then push it to your CPA or push it into QuickBooks or whatever it may be. Wow. And so if I'm a landlord, I mean, end of the day, what can I expect? Is it really about costs? So I'll have, I'll save some money and it'll save me some headaches and time and de-risk my portfolio. Is that I true? need you in marketing. <laughs> I mean, like you just nailed it. I mean, I think it ultimately, I mean, our vision is to fundamentally transform the experience mm. that landlords and their constituents, their tenants and their vendors have with financial services. And it is, it's about number one, making it so super simple that you're eliminating all that manual paperwork that you have to do. It eliminates the need to chase tenants for rent and, you know, negotiate and argue about late fees because our system just automates all of that. And landlords hate, 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 hate dealing with that stuff. And, you know, it's an, an ability to reconcile at the end of a month. Like, did my tenants pay me what they should have paid me? And did they pay me on time? And does that reconcile with what showed up in my bank account? It's, you know, at the end of the year, having to do all of your tax reporting and the single most painful time of the year to be a landlord is tax time. Because regardless of whether or not you have a CPA or you're using any form of tax reporting software, you have to manually calculate your Schedule E's. And it's a pain in the butt. 
and we do it on platform. If you're collecting rent on platform and you have your bank linked and you use our tagging software, which is all free, then, you know, you click a button and you have typically 90% of your schedule E is there. A lot of landlords like to put things like marketing costs and other stuff into the schedule E, but you know, everything else will be done for you automatically. What, I mean, I got to tell you, having run, you know, again, Airbnb is not the best comparison, but just from a simplicity of everything on one platform, it's just amazing. Like, you know, I didn't even think about tax time. It's like you go on there, you hit a button, you get your thing, you, you get whatever your schedule, and you're good to go. So, I mean. Well, Airbnb is a great example. Like, we have a lot of our customers that are short-term and vacation rental owners. Okay. So, if you, you can actually be on the platform if you're also on Airbnb. Yeah, for sure. I mean, think about it like this. You're not doing rent collection because the Airbnb or whatever the listing platform, Vacasa or VRBO or Verbo, I think they're now branding themselves. Yeah. Whatever your platform is, you still have to file a Schedule E tax report. Mm-hmm. And you can use our bank, the Azebo Bank, or you can use your Wells Fargo Bank and connect it to our platform. And anytime you get a payment from Airbnb, there's four or five line items in there that all have to be broken out so that they can get aligned to the right Schedule E tax bucket. Mm. Well, we have a splitting tool on our platform that allows you to do that. And so you just take the transaction. Let's say it's a $2,300 transaction from Airbnb. You click it. You open it up. You say gross revenue, Airbnb fee, cleaning rental fee, and then any expenses. Those go to the Schedule E bucket. Into the year, you press a button and you get a Schedule E. Bada bing, bada boom. And you can buy insurance from us and you can get a loan to buy your rental Airbnb property. You can refinance it. You can do all of those things in one place. You just wouldn't use our rent collection platform. It sounds like you're well on your way to disrupting this industry. So you've been in business, what, how long? About three years? We started the company three years ago. But remember, the starting the company was me sitting in a room looking at myself. You have long moments of just sitting in a room. You know, there was a lot of reflection in the early days of like, you know, this seemed a lot sexier than it is. It's just me calling people, begging them to join. We really started to build our team, you know, about six months into starting the company, we had enough people to actually start designing and building stuff. Mm. And a year later, we released our first product. So that's quick though. I mean, that's from, you know, contemplation to MVP in a year, year and a half. Yeah. I mean, we launched, uh, we've been in market about a year and a quarter. So we launched our first public product in August of uh, 2020. And we went from, you know, zero customers, basically my sisters and brothers and, you know, really, truly friends and family to 10,000 monthly active users. Wow. That's pretty rapid growth. It's been good. And look, it's really actually fairly hard to get on our platform. And and why do I say that? Because we are a financial services company, you know, a landlord has to get verified because there's a lot of fraudsters out there and we want to protect our landlords that are on platform as well as ourselves and our company's reputation. And so you have to go through an ID verification process. You have to go through credit and background checks. You have to go through all these various different things to make sure that we can move money for you because we move money fast. We move it fast, efficiently, and securely, but you have to qualify yeah, to get to, on the yeah, platform. Right? Which you're right. I mean, that's a hurdle, right? I mean, to sign up for a Gmail account takes, what, 20 seconds or something, 30 seconds. seconds, and, you know, who knows who it is. And But to go, you know, train money, you've got terrorism acts, you've got all sorts of things. That yeah, we have to comply want. with anti-money laundering. Yeah. We have know, know your customer, know your business uh, requirements. We're fully reg. I mean, all of the areas that we play in are regulated. And so, you know, we have a lot of the building of the company was making sure we had the right licenses, we had the right security processes, that we were adhering to the right data practices to protect the customer's data and to make sure that, you know, if they wanted their data back and they wanted to shut down, that we could give it to them and shut it down. Just really building the core, not just the technology, but also the core compliance and regulatory yeah. construct. And in 51 states, which is quite a bit. That's right. So you made a wise decision somewhere along the way to move to Nevada. This was <clears throat> originally conceived in the Bay Area and you operated there for some period of time. What made you decide to get wise and move to Nevada? Yeah, you know, some people say it, it's wisdom and some people say it's crazy, but, you know, starting a company is crazy anyway. 
Look, I think there were a lot of intersecting factors. And, you know, when we were thinking about launching our product, we realized somebody said, hey, well, you know, when you launch a product, you're going to actually need people that can help the customer. You know, you actually need people that can do customer support and sales and operations and all that stuff. And we looked around the country because we knew we weren't going to do that in the Bay Area. It's just too costly and it's too hard to find the right people. You know, people just can't afford to live there. It's gotten really, really expensive. And so we looked all over the country and Reno hit my radar because I sat next to one of my former Andreessen Horowitz colleagues on a plane. And he was saying, hey, look, I have a couple of friends that have moved to Reno and they've, they just really have loved it and have found great employees there. So I talked to a couple of them and I said, hey, that's an option. And I was telling Doug, I was telling you earlier, my daughters are all ski racers. So we're always at Lake Tahoe, like literally every weekend in the winter, all holidays. And then we also come up a lot in the summer. And so we were driving, fighting the traffic from the Bay Area, you know, before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And we're like, this is crazy. And then during the pandemic, our kids were out of school and they're remote so we spent all of our time up at Tahoe uh-huh. and we're like, well, why don't we just make the move? And I'm going to build a, an operating center in Reno anyway. So why don't I just go? Because I was looking for one of my executives to go. And so I said, what better way to do this? And I'm just going to move my family, get them back in school full time, get them playing competitive sports, be closer to skiing and build a company here in Reno. Honestly, I love your story. It's like that kind of one-two punch though, right? Like you have to, it has to make business sense, which, you know, more and more, you know, there's lots of examples of that. But then on the family side, you know, it had to make sense. It's great. I'm really, you know, when I meet your daughters, I'll thank them for being ski racers because that's really helpful. If they were competitive surfers, you wouldn't be here probably. Well, you know, there is Lake Tahoe and you can get a surf boat and there's competitive surf boating or surf true surfing behind a boat shorter season that's right a friend of mine was like you're aren't you gonna miss the ocean you know don't you want to surf and see the waves i'm like i'm gonna make my own waves (laughs) (laughs) love it and you have a ranch or something down too now like aren't you like a farmer now when we first met we were talking about this and i'm like who is this crazy guy from the bay area that needs a place to put his cows but i didn't realize you were from louisiana it makes a lot more sense now (laughs) Well, they don't have alligators here, but my wife came from a small town in Germany and uh, I met her when I was stationed over there and her and my daughters, they just love animals and they love the idea of being able to have animals. And so we came down and bought a ranch and we've had cows and we have goats and chickens and cats and dogs. And, you got you know, the full catastrophe. You got the whole thing. And we got bear and coyote and all the ones that we, you know, aren't necessarily yeah. ours. <laughs> but no pigs. I put my foot down on horses and pigs. You know, they just... Mm. The only thing, actually, my uh, good friend Abby roped me into going into 4-H. And so my son raised a pig for a couple of years. It was, I learned a lot about pigs. Which <laughs> is an amazing program, honestly. It's very family-friendly. It was really amazing. And if you really want to get a sense of like... Where bacon comes from, raise a pig. It was a bit of a sad story at the end, but amazing experience. (laughs) Kind of like Charlotte's Web or something. There was a lot of that going on. But it was, you know, it's just amazing to be connected to the the land. No, there is something. My daughter's coming from Silicon Valley, and, you know, now they're out here every day with the goats and, like, dealing with all the stuff you have to deal with when you have coyotes and bears that want to kill your animals and— it's a whole different thing, but they're, they're definitely learning how to, you know, get their their hands dirty. They have all the chores. Like, they got to do it. Right. And they got to feed the animals, water the animals, take care of whatever issues. And the animals, when the goats jump the fence, get in the neighbor's <laughs> yard, they're not calling daddy. Now, it's funny. You know, you have different challenges in different regions, but you're not in that place where you have the horse problem. But the, people do have wild horse problems here, which is always funny. <laughs> so, are they enjoying the move? Are they like the, the region? Yeah, they really do. And it's been a big change for them. I mean, we, you know, I had a sophomore in high school who shifted mid-year, a uh, seventh grader who shifted mid-year. And then the little one, you know, she was in first grade and she started the day we moved here. And what was just really cool, like she really missed her friends. And she was actually, sadly, as much as a five-year-old can be depressed, our kid was depressed. And she was Mm -hmm. falling way behind in school because like, you know, having school on an iPad as a a five-year-old just doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. 
And so the first day in school, she got there and all the kids in her class, every one of them came up to her and said, will you be my friend? And she came home that day and said, I have 18 new friends. Uh And she had the biggest smile on her face I'd seen since COVID started. So like for us, that was the thing that really solidified, okay, we're in a good place here. These are good people. It's a good place. You know, it's very different, but we can make a life here. Yeah, that's awesome. What a beautiful story. You gave me chills when I was thinking about that. I mean, a lot of people, you know, it's easy to to beat up on the school district. But I got to tell you, I think Washoe County School District has done an amazing job through this. I had a lot of friends whose kids were in the Bay Area during this that, you know, stayed home. My brother's kids stayed home for a year. And, you know, I have two elementary school age kids. And they said elementary school kids need to be in school. And they worked it out. And, I, you know, the teachers were amazing. I mean, they worked through a lot of complexity. But, you know, other than that first couple months, they stayed open. I have to agree with you. We actually made part of our decision. I called the schools before we decided to move. And I looked on the website and I've been very active in the school boards and back in the Bay Area and also in talking to the president. I had two kids in private school and one in public. So I was very, I saw that as my mission to get our kids back in school. Mm-hmm. And we, it took a lot of heat for it. My family took a lot of heat for it. Yeah. But I was super vocal about the kids need to be in school yeah, regardless. But what was interesting was I looked on the Washoe County School District and they had published policies for everything. And that was super impressive because, you know, the schools in Silicon Valley were still debating, are we going to be open or not open? There was no policies. And you could read through the Washoe County School District and it said, if a student is infected, here's what's going to happen. If a large outbreak happens, here's what's going to happen. And it was just black and white. It was written down as policy. And a way I would describe it is there was more of a bias to keep the kids in school here. And there was more of a bias to keep the kids out of school there. Definitely. That's been my experience. And, you know, we work obviously closely with the school board and, you know, having my own kids, I was active in communicating. I just I think there's something about this being a part of a smaller community. I think you can kind of wrap your head around it. You'd like know who the people are. I don't know. It just feels like to me there's a barn raising community and there's listening. I mean, there's obviously a lot of different opinions, but trying to do the right thing. You know, I have to give them props for this. Like, for sure. And there's been a lot of outbreaks, but they handle it super well. It's just, yeah. you know, they notify you. Yeah. You know, if your kid's one of the ones that's in that close circle, they send them home yeah. for a couple of days. They make sure that they have access to online learning and they get about their business. Yeah, which is great. Well, I'm really happy to hear. That's a really poignant story about your daughter. I just really appreciate you sharing <laughs> that. So I'm glad they're, I'm glad the goats are okay. Not, haven't had too many losses. And, no, you know. just the, the neighbor's not so happy about it, them jumping the fence and eating the the horse's oats. Hey, it's a real thing. You know, it happens here. So, you know, you've made that move. It sounds like the family's embedded. You know, the, the other part of the business is trying to scale up. You, you guys just successfully raised something like, what, about $19 million? Yes, right? that's so, right. $19.5 million. Congratulations. That's always challenging. But it sounds like you, I mean, you were able to get that done during COVID. So now you're, I'm assuming that was- We launched our company during COVID. I is, mean, we launched their products during COVID. So we don't know anything different. Yeah. People ask, what's the impact of COVID on your product? I'm like, I don't know. We'll see what happens after COVID, whenever that is. But so that's obviously a, a growth round. Like, so you found like your footing in the market and now you're trying to grow. So what are some of the big challenges you guys face? I mean- Oh man, the number one challenge we have is talent. Just mm-hmm. like, it is such a tough market for hiring right now. You know, it's just, I mean, everyone, that's like not news to anyone who's in business. And whether you're Starbucks and trying to hire that hourly worker, by the way, the Starbucks have been closed and I'm not happy about it. I really oh, no. would love some Starbucks. I but, got a bunch um, of local coffee shops that I'll turn you on. Okay, to excellent. That'd be great. But it's really hard to hire out there. And we're trying to hire more people than we ever have before and scaling. And that's our biggest challenge. Like we need great people who really want to transform an industry from the ground up and want to be part of a company that is really centered around its customers and does that through really investing in his people so that we can have a great interaction with our customers. I'm hearing, you know, culture is really critical. I just looked at the numbers today. It was something like unemployment in Washoe County is 2.9%, which basically means everybody that wants to work is working and a bunch of people that don't want to work are being dragged to work. Like it's, that's full employment for us. So how do you differentiate yourself in that? Like, why come work for Zebo? I mean, you seem like a great guy. I enjoy you. It's fine. But like, you know, what's the pitch for Zebo? Yeah. So for us, first of all, I would say in the business that we're in, raising around and having capital and runway is a big deal. And we've raised a lot of capital. We've raised, you know, against the competitive set that we have, we've raised a lot of capital 
And we've got some of the best investors in the industry who've invested in us. Yeah, Silicon Valley Bank is one, obviously. Yep. We know Bo. Who else was? Yeah, so Canaan is a well-known prop tech, fintech. Kosla QED, which is a really uh, deep fintech investor. Camber Creek, which really deeply understands prop tech. And um, we've also brought in a number of new investors this round, RET, which does prop tech, and they're out of Utah. We have Liberty Mutual, which is a big insurer. We used a lot of their products. You know, they're strategic. We brought in Assurant Ventures is also an insured fintech investor, but from an insurance company. And I'm sure I missed a couple, but Context Ventures is also, it's a guy that I know through my uh, military network that invests in veteran-owned businesses. And you were a tank commander or tank operator, right? I don't know what the role yeah, is. Yeah, I was, I was a tank officer. People ask me, what's the best job you've ever had? And I said, listen, I got paid to blow crap up when <laughs> I was in, you know, tank officer. It was actually pretty fun. I mean, you can shoot something at 3,000 meters on a dime yeah, and blow it up. I've gotten to know a lot more military folks over the last couple of years. And just I'm just so impressed with the leadership skills that come out of that. I mean, just my own CEO, you know, he was a West Pointer, so you guys get along there. Just recognize how much you learn in terms of what it really means to be a leader. And I think in the world right now, we're lacking some leaders, I mean, just in different areas. And so it's just good to see, like, it just kind of renewed my faith in the military, actually. You know, I always tell people, I was 17 years old when I went to West Point. And I went there because I was interested in leadership. I'd studied history and I was a big history buff and had just said, look, I want to go learn how to be a leader. And 17 years old, day one, They start giving you challenges, small little challenges, lead a small team of your peers to do a task. And those challenges become bigger and bigger with more and more people. And by the time in your mid-20s, you know, you've done some pretty challenging leadership things with a hugely diverse group of people. And that, to me, I think is there's no substitute for that. It's just like any other sport. It's just repetition and it becomes second nature. Oh, you can tell. I mean, I've definitely been, I've learned a lot from my CEO and a lot of other people that I know have gone through the military. So how, you know, culture, we were talking a little bit before about culture. So what does culture mean to you and your company? It's the top thing. I mean, I looked, I told you the first thing, the biggest competitive advantage we have is deep understanding of our customer. And our yeah. culture really starts with, we put the customer at the center of everything that we do. The customer's our North Star. And I could tell you, my people, my team plays that back to me all the time. Like if we're doing something that, you know, is maybe not, they perceive it to not be in the best interest of the customer, they'll say, they'll call us out. And to me, that's like living the culture. And when they're on the phone with the customer and they can sell them something that's more valuable than the other thing, they know that they are supposed to do the right thing for that customer. And so like I always tell them, I'm like, look, I don't care about the transaction. I don't care about the revenue. I care about does that customer really have a great experience and want to come back? Because we're in it for the long game and we're not in a transaction-based business. Our platform is a, everything that we do for customers is for a lifetime. And um, that's the mindset that we've had day one. I always often equate what we've tried to build from a culture perspective to what USAA really built. You know, when I used to call, I've been a USAA customer since 1988 when I joined the military academy. And, you know, I never, ever met anybody, never, ever went to a physical branch because there was nothing. They've always been virtual. And every time I pick up the phone and call them, they know who I am. And they say something unique about me that only they know. And it's just that sense of trust every time you talk to them. And that's what we're trying to build in our company is, you know, a real relationship with our customers. We know them by name and we really do what we go be above and beyond and we listen to them. They're the ones that are driving the innovation in our business. They're is, really helping us figure out what to do. Which is great. And I think it's such a shift. I think I gave you the book, A Core Value Equation by my buddy Darius, but it was so fascinating because he built a big mortgage business. And, you know, that is an industry that has been largely transactional. And so his big mission was to like, how do we make this relational? And, you know, one, this is probably a minor proof point in that, but like, when they would buy a home, they would ship you a pizza on the day of move-in. Like, stuff like that. You know, and that was just one thing. But it, it was so powerful how that changed because I think all of us as consumers have a sense of when we're transactional to big corporations. And it doesn't feel good. It feels right. vacuous and empty and soulless. So to do the other thing, I mean, it feels more human to me. Well, it's really hard to do, especially when you've got multiple complex products. In a mortgage business, you know, if a traditional mortgage business, they got to hit the numbers. And it is a transactional business by definition because you may get a mortgage once every five to 10 years. They're not going to be calling you every month. 
by the nature of the fact that we're a platform that has multiple products and we have products that you need every day. We have products you need every month. We have products that you need once a year and we have products you need once every five years. And our goal is to, is to have a strong relationship with you such that we're the first person you think about, the first company you think about when you have to get any one of those products. Mm. And over time, as we get more and more capital to invest and we are able to build and scale our team, we're just going to add more and more products that customers say they want. And like I said, we don't even have to think about what products customers want. They just tell us. We talk to them all the time. I was talking to a group today and it's just like, what's that hair on fire problem? And I'm sure that they're like, yeah, this is great. You're, you know, helping me with my schedules and all this. But if you could do blank, and then that makes it into your next release or the release after that. That's great. Yeah. And also when you have a deeper relationship with customers, sometimes it's not that one word answer. What we often do is we show them a prototype. And that's what you can do in technology is you can quickly prototype something and you just put it in front of them and say, what do you think? And then like that just stimulates so many other thoughts and reactions and it create, they're like, Oh God, there's this other problem I have that I forgot about. And it costs me and they can tell you how many man days or hours or the level of pain that it takes to do that. And that's where the real creation comes from because they can't articulate it until they see something that gives them a stimulus that makes them talk about it. And then we can go talk to five other customers. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's, it's tough to walk into an, a, an empty building and have vision, right? Like you have to kind of lead people down the path. I mean, some people have vision, like the architects, but for most people, they're like, uh, show me something and you can help me figure out. So, you know, with your hiring, I mean, you're, it seems like the whole world has gone, maybe not remote first, but, you, you know, you have remote enabled. So you have a, obviously you have some operations in Reno. You know, where are you looking to hire all your people? We have two primary operating centers in the U.S. One is in, I call it Tahoe, Reno, because mm-hmm. like, I just love Tahoe and it's, it's the most beautiful place on earth. And I've lived a lot of places. Says, but you shouldn't come here because there's too much traffic. Our headquarters are here. All of our customer ops, sales, some of our analytics, customer success team, all based here. Yeah. Insurance and mortgage. Our technology teams and our product engineering, marketing, it's all Bay Area. And by the way, we're totally, like anybody wants to live anywhere, we're totally fine with that. They can leave in either one of those two spots. We also have a big engineering team in Bangalore, India. Yeah. And we have a small cohort in L.A., and then we have a couple other people scattered around the U.S. You know, at the end of the day, my philosophy on this is we're kind of a hybrid. I call it a hybrid. You know, we expect you to be together as a team on at least a once a week basis if you're innovating, creating product. And so a lot of our team members in the Bay Area, they get together at least once a week. We have a, a dedicated officer. Everyone else, we expect you to get together when the company gets together. So I go to the Bay Area once every four to six weeks and the team gets together and we do collaborative uh, nonlinear problem solving. So yeah. if you're in Houston, you're going to come in. And then I get my management team to the Reno area once a quarter. And we do, you know, really coordination, problem solving, planning, yeah. all that kind of stuff. I try and see every person that's geographically close at least, uh, you know, a couple times a year. Yeah. It's so interesting how, you know, you're describing the face of business today, right? It's just changed. I mean, obviously there are play- places that are not that way. I mean, manufacturing and some other places, but, you know, every company that I talk to in technology these days has some variation on that, you know, different playbooks. Like if they're this type of person, you have to be this place or, you know, my friend's a, an attorney and he's like, okay, first customer meetings for patents are in person, but then everything else is remote. It's just, yeah. it's interesting how it's just sort of broken open. We were forced to change. I tell people I struggled. When COVID hit, I'm a leader who likes to lead from the front. I learned that when I was young, as, yeah. as we talked about. And I like to put my arm around people and and push them and coach them and, and pick them up when they're down. And it is so hard to do that remotely yeah. and when you're talking to people on the phone or doing them in video. You just don't have that human connection that, you know, is just since the beginning of time. That's what we the way we've connected with people, even yeah. without saying anything. You know, you can sit in a room with someone who you don't speak the same language as and connect with them. And so you can't do that on video. It'll be interesting to see how we play this out in three or four years, you know, when when the pandemic is in the complete in the rearview mirror. I mean, I think no one will ever go back 100% to the old way because there's just some too much efficiency. And I like having the ability to sometimes be at home. And everybody, I mean, it gives you flexibility, but just kind of what's that 
finding that right balance. But I mean, it's really exciting, you know, for me, just personally, you know, having trying, you know, working on growing the ecosystem for many years, like the number of companies that were here that were high tech, high growth that offered, I don't know what your packages are, but like, you know, to have some equity in something to grow and really create something was very few. You're so right. And like, I talk to people here and there's not the same equity culture in Reno as there is in the businesses I grew up in. And I try and tell young people, especially like give up a dollar of cash for a dollar of equity all day long. Like if I could give up all of the cash that I ever was paid and still live, I would like, that would have been a smart trade many times over in the last 20 years of my career. I just didn't know. I remember coming out of business school and I was negotiating You know, I chose to go to McKinsey over Goldman Sachs because, you know, McKinsey was going to pay me a little bit more cash. And I was in debt a lot. I was a slumlord and and had a lot of debt on my houses and had a bunch of business school debt. (laughs) It's something that I think people probably undervalue. Totally. If you can have even a small amount of equity as as a young person in a startup that's growing like crazy, over time, that stuff could be more valuable than any of the cash you got. It totally changed my trajectory. I mean, right out of college, I worked for a company called Brio Technologies, and that was like employee number 40. I mean, I got some, you know, small number of shares, but the company went public three years later, and it was worth, you know, multiple hundreds of thousand dollars. You know, that set me it's up. It's a life-changing it event. It was totally. I mean, it was, you know, I wasn't, didn't make millions, but, you know, it was great. It, like, it fundamentally shifted what was possible. And then, you know, you come to, this is one of our challenges in this market is helping people make those different choices. You know, like, oh, I can go work over here for a dollar more an hour, but, or I can go over here and I can get this thing that doesn't, you know, they need to have friends that have made millions. Or Even the career trajectory in companies like ours. I mean, we hired the first two women that we hired in Reno last year in November are now managing for us. They've been promoted multiple times. And like, we just got lucky. Honestly, I think we hired two amazing women who had just great leadership skills and, you know, they ended up being culture carriers. And in fact, like a lot of times they talk about, you know, adhering to the culture. And I'm like, look, you guys built the culture. The culture is not the piece of paper. The culture is the people and how they interact with each other. And like the first couple of people you hire, you know, if you get it right, they build the culture. I mean, you can, as a CEO, you can say, oh, look, here's what we think the culture is going to be. But like at the end of the day, everybody looks around and says, is the CEO doing what he says he's going to do? And like, is everybody else operating and interacting? That's the culture. It's not what's written on the pretty pages. It's, It's how people treat each other, how they treat the customer and how they interact on a daily basis. And in this way, I mean, honestly, I mean, you know, you just have your company here is completely additive to the ecosystem. I, you know, I, one of my core values is like raising the bar. And I totally think you personally, just by your interaction with our ecosystem and your company is raising the bar in Nevada. And what that'll do is it'll show other people that there's different opportunities. I think for so many years I watched people love living here, but they made real trade-offs to live here, right? Like you had to take jobs or there wasn't the growth opportunity or whatever. You had to leave if, you know, to find a growth opportunity. But now you know, people have growth opportunities here. I mean, part of my why originally was like, I want my kids to be able to stay here if they want. I mean, they probably won't, but they'll probably come back. Like, I don't know how you leave this and come back. And don't like, I was trying to get my wife to go to Florida or Texas. And she's like, I'm not leaving Tahoe. It's not happening. It's an amazing place, right? It, you know, but you definitely have to explore the rest of the world. But the, you know, a lot of people had to make a lot of Nevadans. I mean, there's a lot of four and fifth generation people had to leave to make their marker to find the career. But now like it's, you don't have to make that trade off right. nearly as much. And that's, that's really good for families. It's a great place. You know, I think the UNR and the ecosystem that you guys are building is really important to that. And, you know, I, like I think about one of the other things that we really liked about Reno was, you know, I grew up in a town of 250,000 people in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It was an awesome place to grow up. I mean, which is just awesome. We just loved it. And, but I could never do business there and I could never build the business that I'm building there. But here you got double the size of the town, but you have far more services here because you have people, you have millions of people from Tahoe that come here for all their services. And you have the gaming industry that draws people from all over the country as well, especially even regionally. And that combination creates this unique space for a $500,000 yeah. 
I mean, a 500,000 person city it feels a lot bigger. You mean the biggest little city? <laughs> I couldn't think of the right thing, but yeah, the biggest little city, yeah, yeah, but no, it does big. have that feel. And then you have access to, you know, Silicon Valley is only a three and a half hour drive. I actually, it's quicker to drive than to fly. We had Jet Suite X for like a hot second and it was great. I had like one experience that ruined me for life because you could like fist bump the pilot and it took, it shaved an hour off, but it, and now it's only Vegas. It's a bummer, but <laughs> maybe they'll come back. We just need more of you to come and, you know, go back and forth the Bay Area. Yeah, for sure. I think it's definitely happening. I mean, you know, look, California's talking about raising its marginal tax rate to 18%. I saw that. If that happens, there's Reno's going to be a million people overnight. <laughs> can, can I vote for that for you or something? Like, I got to figure out how to, I can mail in a vote because that'll totally help our economic development strategy. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> if, it might ruin some other parts of society. It's a great place to live. Yeah, I know. I just, it's so fun to, to meet, you know, I, I cut my teeth in the valley. And so this was my sense of what a good ecosystem was is very much a felt sense of my experience there. And so it's really cool to see people like yourself coming over here and then, really embracing what it means to be an Nevadan and then also bringing their wisdom and expertise. I mean, you you know, like just listening to your resume, I mean, you have a pretty remarkable experience. I mean, there's not that many people that are, A, Andrew Z. Horowitz have gone to KKR, I've done all these things. So I, you know, I appreciate that you bring that wisdom and then also integrate that. Like the fact that you have, I think your Louisiana balances out your Silicon Valley. Here you are. That's why you <laughs> that's work. A, that's probably the headline for this uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you a story. My wife saw this photo contest on the Louisiana crawfish website. And so she was pregnant and she had this horrible thing where she dressed up and had a Fu Manchu and all this. It was horrible, but she put it on this food on this contest and we won a turducken. We won this contest. <laughs> and ever since then, I mean, I just love Louisiana in general, but to win a turducken from Louisiana crawfish was like a life. Was it cooked? Cause cooking, it's hard. Cooking. It was hard. It was, it got a little dry. I've had a few since then. I figured it out. <laughs> That's great. But no, it's, That's it's a fun. very unique it's like ham stuffed in duck, stuffed in turkey, yeah, it's deep a, fried. It's like with crawfish etouffee as a stuffing. I mean, it's like only in Louisiana. I mean, like, what an amazing place to eat. I just, yeah, uh, it's, it's a remarkable place. It's super fun. Did, do you still get back there quite a bit? Or I right? do. My dad and my sister still live there. So I go back and, you know, my friends growing up, it's one of these places. And I think Reno has a lot of these characteristics where you go home and everyone just embraces you. It's just such a warm, loving place. And, you know, it's funny because my wife and I always said, look, we really couldn't do our businesses in Louisiana. But every time we go back, we're like, we don't know anywhere where there's a sense of community where people just help each other. They help each other because you're part of their community, because yeah. you're part of their church, because you're part of their family. And it's really special. I think there's some of that here in Reno as well. Totally. I feel that. I always kind of describe this as a barn raising community because, you know, I grew up in Phoenix and there wasn't, I mean, it was just suburbia. And then my short stint in the Bay Area, I just didn't really find community. But here, you know, if I need someone to help build a fence or do a thing, you know, I, it's easy. People come over on the weekends and help out. It's just, I, you know, it just feels special, right? And I just still like the fact that you walk down the streets and people are smiling at you. Like, that's a thing, you know? <laughs> it's great. You know, when I first moved here, I was uh, walking down the street and there's really no shoulders on the street where I'm at. It's pretty rural. And uh, I was talking to my CTO back in the Bay Area and I said, I've got to go. I'm not really sure what to do, but like, there's a cow running down the middle of the street. <laughs> there literally was this big black Angus cow running down the middle of the street and the cars were all stopped. And, you know, I had to help the guys wrangle it. I didn't do much wrangling. I just kind of like told them where it was. <laughs> That's crazy. I didn't yeah. want to get stepped on. Or no, anything, no, you know? no, I didn't have boots. You got to be in the front, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I watched at 4-H. I watched people, how you have to break a cow is hard is, or whatever, you know, like is much harder than working with the pigs. I think he was a tractor. I don't know. It was complicated. I was learning a lot. It was super fun. That's cool. So just, you know, what's next for Zebo? Like, where are you guys? What's on your trajectory? Yeah, I mean, we just opened, I think, 25 job recs. Okay. And, you know, it's all about hiring right now. I mean, that's the number one focus of the company is finding the right talent. They can help us scale. Yeah, We have such an amazing kind of roadmap of innovation that we want to bring to the market. And we can't do it if we don't have the full team in place. Yeah. You know, one of the big things we're doing in the first half of this year is each landlord that joins our platform brings at least uh, five tenants. Mm -hmm. And we think it'll be 10 by the end of this year. And so, you know, and our tenant experience is okay, you know, but we really focused a lot on our landlord experience. And what we've realized is that 
you know, we just have so many more tenants on our platform. We've got to make that tenant experience great. And so a lot of our first half um, investment is going to be in fundamentally remaking the tenant experience so that they will want to come to Azebo whether they're landlords on it or not. Uh, and they can get access to products and services that they can't get anywhere else all in one spot and incorporate it into a monthly invoice for their rent, you know, like, you know, renter's insurance and pet insurance and, you know, deposit insurance. So they don't have to pay a security deposit. I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, no. And, and buy now pay later where like, if they're struggling with rent, they don't want their landlord to know, they don't want to be behind on rent because it hits their credit. We're also doing credit reporting to the credit agencies. It's a service that if a tenant wants, they can pay a small monthly fee and we'll report to the credit agency. And the credit agencies will tell you 30 to 40% of tenants would qualify for government-backed loans, which are the cheapest loans, if they reported their rent payments. And so we're going to do that for, make that available for tenants. And we're just making it a fundamentally different experience for that tenant to be able to manage their relationship with the home that they live in from a financial services which perspective. Is, which I think is so powerful. I have a good friend of mine that he and I talk about this a lot. I mean, you know, just about, I think we're going to see more and more renters in the world. Like, I mean, costs and all these things that, you know, we're shifting. But, you know, I think that their home ownership is in the American dream. So if you're a renter, like you're not living the dream. And so there just feels a little bit like we need to do something to bring the pride back of where you're living, even if you're renting, like, and there's got to be ways to do that that are that help people, you know, live their best lives. And so, it, it's I'm glad to hear that you know they could come on your platform and get access to things that they didn't know they could get just simply right. by using what you, what you know your platform. I agree with you. I think there's a lot of people that really owning a home doesn't fit with their lifestyle and or their financial capacity because you know owning a home is there's far more hidden costs. Yeah. in owning a home than is, you know, on the surface. I think the one thing that our country does do to like reinforce the American dream is our tax structure is really supportive of uh, buying an, a home and putting debt on it. Except if you live in one of the salt states like California. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't deduct all that mortgage interest. Yeah. I agree with you. And, and like we, and tenants are really nervous about their financial services. And so if we've established a level of trust with them by the nature of the fact that they've connected their bank account, their credit cards, their debit cards, you know, we're going to take that to the next level and really create an experience that we can be proud of and that tenants will really want to be part of. And then shortly thereafter, we're creating a bill payment system for vendors that's much more robust. We have one now, but it's not nearly as robust as I'd like it to be. The vast majority of vendors for independent landlords do handwritten invoices. I mean, I have tons of them for my properties. And like we can give them super mobile, super easy to use mobile tools that allow them to send an invoice to a landlord. And then a landlord doesn't have to do anything other than hit a button to pay it. You know, we're not trying to recreate any big billing system. We're just trying to like, you know, there's this term underbanked. We want to like help the undermanaged. I like that, helping the undermanaged. I got to tell you, Chris, I'm excited. Like you got me fired up. I mean, I knew a little bit about what you were doing, but like I really can see the vision and I'm just really happy you're growing here. And I hope that we can uh, help you find, you know, all the people you need in the community so we can just create more, you know, happy Nevadans and they can all get goats and their own land. I don't know. You know, I, I was skeptical about the goats. I kind of like them now. Yeah. <laughs> They're the great, the best fire prevention animals in the world. Totally. Which we could, <laughs> that we could use a lot of here. That yeah. would be good. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. I look forward to the next dinner. We get a chance to hang out and uh, yeah, it's been great chatting with you. Thank you, Doug. It was really enjoyable. Awesome. Take care. 